Thank you for getting us ready for Palm Sunday, Otto. I appreciate that. It's kind of a penance because I hear that there's a number of you who came to the early service so you could get home in time to watch a basketball game. <laughs> and uh, I noticed also that they haven't changed the clock back there. So if I'm just going by my normal time frame, I have until 9.30, right? So I've got a lot of time yet to go. We've got a couple tools that might help you this morning. One of them's in your bulletin. It's a little sermon cell sheet, and it's got a little map on the back that might help give you some perspective of this little piece of the road we're going to talk about today. And I tried to print a map this week that has kind of a little uh, topographical feel to it, so you can kind of get a sense. You, oftentimes, you know, you look at a map and it just looks like flat. Uh, this tries to give you a little sense that we're going to start over on the right in Bethany, and then you go uphill from there kind of around the Mount of Olives until you get to Bethpage, which would be kind of a high point. And you kind of come around the Mount of Olives, and then for the first time you can see Jerusalem, which is the destination we've kind of been headed toward this whole series. And then after that, you have to go down a hill into the valley that surrounds Jerusalem, and then it's a fairly steep climb up the hill to get back into Jerusalem. So that kind of gives you a little sense of a road, probably the most famous of all the roads that we've talked about so far, is this road from Bethany to Jerusalem and uh, made famous because of this particular day. Because on this day, it's believed that people started to line the road maybe as early as Bethpage and kind of lined all the way into Jerusalem and with their palm branches and they're throwing their coats on the ground and cheering and singing. And I don't know if the wave was actually part of that, but there was quite an exuberant and kind of an exultant crowd that was gathered there on that first Palm Sunday to welcome Jesus and uh, we've, we've got a name for this particular journey. We call it the triumphal entry because it looked like Jesus was about to like, triumph in really some dramatic way and the crowd was quite large. So that's what we're going to look at today. And our reading this year is from uh, Luke 19. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open up and turn to that. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew there or open up your phone or your iPad or your Kindle or something and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start reading from verse 28, Luke 19, starting with verse 28. Luke's version of Palm Sunday is actually the most subdued of all the Gospels. This story is in all four Gospels. Luke frames his story, some might even call it uh, a little bit depressing, because right before this, there's kind of a judgment scene. And then we get the triumphal entry, and then after that, there's kind of a uh, thing we're going to look at today that seems quite ominous and quite uh, somber. But we're going to start reading with verse 28, Luke 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on the road going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as Jesus told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying that colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down 
the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming for you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on every word from the mouth of Jesus. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So I'm going to turn the tone a little bit by asking you the question, what makes you cry? Think about that for a moment. What makes you cry? And while you're pondering that, I got a little video clip to kind of help get you in the mood. So... I love to cry. It's one of my favorite things to do. You start sounding like the lion, the wizard of... You know that thing. I was bawling when I took my son on his first day of kindergarten. I was asked him, do you want mommy to stay outside and watch for a little bit? And he turned and said, oh, I'm good. You can go now. I cry out everything. Commercials, sitcoms. If you want to say something nice about me that really makes me cry, I cry thinking about my own funeral and the amazing eulogies that will be said. I was in the bathroom crying, and I just said to myself, you know what, I'm making pasta three nights in a row, but it's good enough. My kids are eating. It's fine. I try to crack you. Yeah, you know, just... I had to once give my child a suppository. He cried, I cried, my husband cried. It was awful. It was a lot of crying. And I'm trying not to cry as I'm talking. I cannot believe I'm crying about this. This is so stupid. I'm sorry. Stop, stop. It's getting out of control. I found it interesting as I was going through this clip that they didn't show any men. But we all know that men aren't supposed to cry, right? I uh, burned my thumb this week on a 400-degree iron skillet, and I did not shed a tear. And then I'm watching these great big giant basketball-playing men at the end of their games losing, and they got the towels over their head, and I'm like the lion in Wizard of Oz. Like, I can't believe they're crying. What do you think about talking about crying on Palm Sunday? It seems a little odd, doesn't it? I was chatting with my son yesterday, Travis, and 
we were talking about how to make Palm Sunday exuberant, and we had some really cool ideas like riding in on a donkey and stuff like that. Um, and I got to thinking about it. This is probably about my 52nd or my 53rd Palm Sunday. I don't remember ever hearing a message about crying on Palm Sunday. So it seems like kind of an odd move, but this is exactly what Luke does when we follow up the Palm Sunday story with this little passage about Jesus in the middle of this crowd that's all exuberant and all exultant and waving the palm branches and throwing down singing praises and right in the middle of it, Jesus cries. And not just a little bit of crying, it's, he, it's described as wept. Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And I have a picture that this happens as he's coming kind of around that corner, around the Mount of Olives. He's come up the hill from Bethany. He's now catching maybe the first glimpse of Jerusalem on this journey into the city. And as he sees the city, something triggers this in him so that he begins to weep over the city that he sees in the distance. What would make Jesus cry like this? Do we have any MASH fans here? I still watch MASH. We kind of, it's kind of our bedtime ritual, actually. Some of you who are familiar will know the Dr. Trapper, and this is in one of the, I think, the second season, early in the series. He gets diagnosed as having a stomach ulcer. Remember that episode? And he's kind of depressed at first, but then Hawkeye informs him that here's the army regulation on that. Because of the ulcer, you get to go home. This is like his ticket out of the war. So they plan a farewell party for Trapper, and just moments before he goes to this party, the company clerk radar shows up with a message from headquarters, and lo and behold, they've changed the regulation on ulcers. So now he has to have his ulcer treated right there in Korea. And Trapper tells him not to tell anybody. He goes on to the party, and they throw this festive kind of farewell. Everything's going fine until Trapper gets up to make his little farewell speech. And when he makes his farewell speech, he tells everyone the truth. He's not going anywhere. He's going to stay right there. Throughout the party, you could probably have noticed both Trapper and Radar, they're in the festivities, but they're not really with it. And I have noticed that if you look at their eyes, uh, you might have noticed the truth, that this party is going to end up way different than anybody expected it to end up. And that got me wondering about, what if we had looked at Jesus' eyes as he was traveling this road from Bethany to Jerusalem? Would we have noticed something in his eyes that indicates this party is going to turn out different than anybody expects? And that's what I want you to think about with me for a few moments this morning, gazing into Jesus' eyes to see what story they're telling us about this Palm Sunday journey. I think his story, the real story, was clear in his eyes. Jesus knew what he had to accomplish. And if you'd look in his eyes, I think you would have seen that. He was dead set on accomplishing his mission. Jesus knew that proceeding into the holy city on this day was part of that journey. Jesus knew that he was going to follow his Father's will. Not his will, but his Father's will be done. Jesus knew what was coming, and 
even though he knew it would ultimately bring the very thing these people were cheering about, peace and glory and salvation, Hosanna, save us. This would all be fruit of Jesus' journey. He also knew that it was heading to the cross. It was not heading to a throne. Jesus knew what he was about to endure. And I think if you would have caught his eye as he was riding that donkey into Jerusalem that day, you would have noticed something very different. And yet even though Jesus knew all of this was about to happen to him, when we read about these tears in Luke chapter 19, he's not actually crying for himself. He's crying for the people in the city. This is what it said. Now as he drew near, Jesus saw the city and wept over it. Now this tone is not surprising if you've been paying attention to our little journey through Luke. One theme that seems to run very consistently throughout Luke's gospel is this, that Jesus was a man of compassion. That he had compassion on all people. Jews, non-Jews, foreigners, aliens, government workers, soldiers, tax collectors, sinners, insiders, outsiders, outcasts. Jesus had compassion on everyone. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter if you were the underdog or the average Joe or the overachiever. Jesus had compassion. It's said that the eyes are the window to the soul, that if you look into someone's eyes, you can see what's really important to them. If you looked into Jesus' eyes, you would see compassion. We're told in two different places specifically that Jesus cried, and in both cases the reason for that crying is compassion. The first one comes in John 11. Jesus is going to visit his friend Lazarus, who has passed away, and he's grieving over the loss of his friend. He's grieving because the people he cares about are grieving. I mean, you'd have to be pretty hard-hearted not to cry in this kind of situation. John 11, verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. The second recorded instance of Jesus crying is in the passage we just read. Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem and he's touched deeply. He's moved to tears. And I think that if we had been looking into his eyes on that first Palm Sunday, we might have been able to see it coming. This is something that was deep within Jesus waiting to come out. And I want to just look at at least three reasons that I've been thinking about of why Jesus wept. Three quick reasons. The first reason, Jesus cried because the people had an opportunity to believe, but they rejected it. They had a chance to see Jesus for who he really was, but they have not yet seen it. If only you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace. This is what Jesus is saying about these people in the city of Jerusalem. If only you had known. That's kind of a statement of regret, isn't it? If only, isn't that a regret kind of phrase? These people who had the scriptures, these people who knew the promises of God, these people who have been watching Jesus carefully, these people who have heard him teach, these people who have witnessed his miracles, these these people who have an understanding of who Jesus is, They didn't get it. If only you had known, Jesus says, what really makes for peace. 
As Jesus comes down this hill and catches this glance, uh, uh, this view of Jerusalem, I think it hits him like a ton of bricks. How many people in this city do not believe? They had every opportunity, but they do not believe. And this is a festive time. It's a time of uh, preparation for Passover. There's pilgrimages. There's all kinds of people coming, people of faith. And yet, if only they had believed. Even those waving palm branches were looking for the wrong thing. They want a king on a throne. They want someone who's going to rule in the moment. They want someone to take care of the situation here and now. The last thing they really want is a man on a cross. If only you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that truly make for peace. Jesus, I think, is sad and he cries because these people had an opportunity to believe, but they did not believe. They rejected him. Which leads me to the second reason I think Jesus cried. Jesus cried because when the people reject him, there's consequences. They suffer because of it. If we are compassionate people and we see suffering, it makes us cry, doesn't it? One of the things that always triggers crying for me is when I see somebody else crying. Can't help it. When I see somebody else who's hurting, Jesus cried not because he suffered, but because he was seeing the suffering all around him, and he was also anticipating some suffering that was about to come. This is what's in the next little section of Luke 19 there. The days will come, Jesus says, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. This is kind of a typical picture of what happens when someone uh, besieges a city. They circle it and they build ramps around it, prepare to destroy it. Verse 44, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. These people did not see what God was doing. And so this kind of judgment is coming. And this suffering that Jesus is predicting here actually arrives just a little less than 40 years later. And the entire city of Jerusalem is overthrown. The temple is destroyed. The city is leveled. Jesus' prediction comes true. This is the consequence of sinful unbelief in a broken world. It's not just this generation that's going to suffer that. It's every generation that has ever lived suffers the consequences of sin, including our own. I've been kind of reflecting on that the last couple of weeks. I've been paying attention to suffering and to heartbreak and hurt, kind of trying to I've been trying to engage this little exercise of like looking at the world like Jesus would look at it, kind of trying to contemplate what is Jesus seeing when he looks at the world. And some of what I saw is just absolutely heartbreaking. See marriages and families breaking apart, teenagers killing each other and killing themselves, human trafficking, kids going to bed hungry every night, injustice and grief 
and loneliness and depression and anxiety and pain, sickness, death. You know, suffering. This is what I see when I look out into the world. Suffering makes Jesus sad. It makes him weep. Looking into his eyes, you can see what this does to him. I think what it does is it actually sets his face with even greater determination to carry out the plan that he has to carry out. That as he's in the midst of this crowd that's cheering and exulting and Hosanna and blessed be the king, he is saying, I am going to carry out my mission and nothing is going to stop me from that. And he resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem and he heads toward one thing and that's the cross. Because that is the way that he is going to set right all that is wrong. The way that he's going to fix everything that is broken. The way that he's going to make this world beautiful again in the midst of his ugliness is he's going to go to the cross. He's going to take the sin and the brokenness of the whole world on his shoulders to complete his mission. He's not going to the throne today. He's going to the cross. Which I think also relates to the third reason why Jesus cried. I think Jesus weeps because he sees people who are harassed. This is, I think, my vision or my terminology for what it is like to live in a world that's so broken and to live in a world with an imagination of how it could be so much better, and yet it's not. And the Bible actually picks up on this same language. Now I'm looking at Matthew chapter 9, another situation where Jesus is touched deeply and moved by his compassion. Matthew 9, verse 35 to 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, Matthew tells us, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This world is broken and people hurt And this is a kind of harassment because we can imagine a better world, can't we? We can imagine a world with no pain or no tears. We can imagine a world where justice comes flowing in like a mighty river. We can imagine a world where all that is broken is fixed. We can imagine a world free from abuse free from hunger, free from poverty, free from war. We can imagine a world like that, can't we? And yet we don't have one. That's harassment. We can hope for something better, and yet this world jerks us around, harassed and helpless. Those first waivers of palm branches could imagine something far better and they thought Jesus was the guy to bring it. And they thought that he would start to bring it that very day. That he would storm the castle and take the throne and he would be the one who would fix everything for them right there in that moment. They expected Jesus to become king. And Jesus will become king, but not the way they thought. This party turned out different than everybody expected. 
And we might have figured it out if we'd looked into Jesus' eyes. Jesus knows that the people are harassed and helpless. He hears them cry out in the midst of their deepest longing and deepest needs and deepest suffering. Jesus knows the world is broken. He knows that it's in desperate need of fixing. Jesus knows the tension between the kingdom that has already come and the kingdom that is not yet here. Jesus knows this road will lead to something far, far better, but we're not there yet. Jesus knows that he's riding a donkey and not a stallion. Jesus knows that this crowd that is cheering, Hail to the King, Hosanna, they know that this crowd is going to betray him. Jesus knows that those who are shouting Hosanna will soon shout, Crucify him. Jesus knows what has to happen. He knows that he has to go to the cross in order to set everything right. And this will transform the world, not just here and now in this moment along this road to Jerusalem, but this will begin the process of setting the world right for all eternity until one day everything is made perfect and beautiful once again. I I was watching a little video this week actually that stirred my imagination in this very way. It was kind of a different little video, but it showed me and helped me experience the power of looking at the world with hope in the midst of brokenness and believing that even in the midst of brokenness something could be set right to make this broken world beautiful again. So it stirred my imagination to start to think about what it might look like when Jesus actually accomplishes that mission. And I thought it might stir your imagination too. So I'd like you to just watch this little clip. เพราะสิ่งที่เขาได้
คือได้แค่ความรู้สึกได้เห็นความสุขได้เข้าใจได้ความรักได้ในสิ่งที่เงินซื้อไม่ได้ได้โลกที่สวยงามกว่าเดิมในชีวิตคุณอะไรคือสิ่งที่คุณต้องการมากที่สุดแล้วก็ขอให้คุณมีเวลาในการคิดถึงนี้ขอให้คุณมีเวลาในการคิดถึงนี้ขอให้คุณมีเวลาในการคิดถึงนี้ขอให้คุณมีเวลาในการคิด